Welcome to season three. I feel like this conversation is long overdue. As a human with 20 years of adulting experience, I am pleased to inform the hyperlineals I don't have it figured out. In fact, no one does. It's true. All that grinding I did because someone said, you're not successful because you don't work hard enough, or you got the wrong degree, or your skills just aren't valuable enough, or any one of a hundred other things that we've been told every day. We've heard these things so much that we begin to echo them in our heads. From our most vulnerable private moments to our most outrageous triumphs, we are never quite good enough. So then, what about happiness? And when I say happiness, I mean to be content within a solitary moment. It took me 20 years to figure out that contentment and exhaustion in any capacity are not the same. One is a state of mind, the other a state of body. I had the great fortune of engaging with today's guest, Mr. Mark Anielski, poet, economist, historian, high priest of love, and author of An Economy of Well-Being. We talk a little bit about a lot of stuff, and it is my hope that you enjoyed this conversation with him as much as I did. As usual, I can be reached by emailing themjgshow at mjgstorycreation.com. And now, Mr. Mark Anielski. Mr. Mark Anielski, welcome to the M. Jason Graham Show. So just to start off, if you could tell us a bit about who you are and how you came to this work. So I am Canadian. I live in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, in the Treaty 6 territory of the First Peoples. And I was born in Calgary in 1960 and lived in Edmonton all my life. I studied at the university accounting, then economics, then forestry. And so I'm actually a professional forester and a forest economist. So I learned over the years and my work primarily in the macro level of accounting, economics, uh, national income accounting, GDP accounting, that we were operating the nation without a balance sheet. And it may sound really boring. That means that we're, as Robert Kennedy once said, we're not measuring the things that actually make life worth living. He said that in 1968. And his challenge has motivated my work for the last 20 years, which begs the question, if we begin to measure the things that matter in our lives, then we would surely want to measure the conditions of well-being of a society. And it turns out the word wealth comes from the Old English, which means the conditions of well-being. The word happiness means well-being of your soul, well-being of your spirit, oidaimonia. So well-being is a central feature of the ideas I presented uh, in something I call the economics of well-being. Economics, the economy word means household stewardship, oikos, household in Greek, nomia, management. It all fits together in a kind of new invigorated accounting system that begins to measure the well-being ROI, the well-being impacts of everything we do in, in life, all the way up to the creation of money, national monetary policies, banking, investments, everything. And so I've developed protocols, accounting and valuation protocols to measure all things, policies, programs, government services through a well-being impact lens. So hearing you talk about it, this is not a new concept. 
right? That's correct. There's nothing new under the sun, they say. Uh, so we can go all the way back 500 years ago to Venice, where Luca Pazzioli, a mathematician, a Franciscan monastic, advisor of the Pope, and his friend, Leonardo da Vinci, designed the double-entry bookkeeping system, which we still use today. It gave the power, it gave the Medicis of Florence the great power, and they became the dominant bankers of Europe. Uh, so this double-entry bookkeeping system was based on the principle of divine proportion, as in nature, so in accounting. So debits equals credit. And Lucas said, all wealth comes from God. All wealth comes from the creator. Wealth didn't originate because we created it. It was gifted to us. And we therefore are accountable as stewards of the, the wealth of our households, of our communities. And if we fail to account for the well-being impacts of our work, then we are literally failing to account to the creator for that which we were given. So when it comes to specific examples, I was surprised to learn that this kind of accounting is happening in the United States in in different cities and even at the state level. One of those states being, I think, North Dakota. Is that Right. Vermont as well. North Dakota, particularly Vermont, has been a leader. Can you speak to how they found a way to implement their what I would consider poor states? I know they're smaller states, but I wouldn't consider them having to deal with poverty on a systemic level like a lot of the southern states do. Right. Vermont, of course, you could say, well, it's nice. Vermont's a lovely place of men and Jerry's and cows and, you know, lollipops and rainbows and you know, progressives, but North Dakota or South Dakota, where the Sioux people live in the Black Hills, pretty cool. What's unique about North Dakota is North Dakota is the only state public bank in North America, other than my province, Alberta. And that's interesting as a whole other tangent. But when you have a public bank, it means you can create money for the people, by the people, unlike what we see in the rest of the United States. My idea about what that means is that if you have a sovereign state and wealth accounts and a bank, you can create money against the assets with deliver well-being impacts at the state level. Does North Dakota exercise that option? Not entirely. Is Vermont on the right track by having a genuine progress index? Yeah, it's the beginning of awareness, beginning of wisdom. But it's still not formalized in the state of Vermont's budgeting process or their capital accounts, right, at the operational level. That's when serious well-being economics takes hold. Now, last season, I was introduced to your book. I was introduced to the concept of an economy of well-being because I had my guest in the season finale lives in Bali. And so he told me about Bhutan. Bhutan, yes, who has a happiness index. So could you could you explain how they have developed that system and how they maintain it? Yes. So Bhutan is a Buddhist kingdom. They have a king and their culture is Buddhist in terms of their religion. And they're called the Dragon Kingdom. 
So kind of about the same time, I think, as Tibet was emerging, Bhutan emerged as the Buddhist dragon kingdom. So there are people of about 700,000 people sandwiched between China and India, right up against Himalayas. And in the 1970s, the king of Bhutan said, you know, we have this gross domestic product or gross national product measure of progress, which everyone uses. But he said, why don't we have something called gross national happiness index? So as an alternative to GDP, which just measures all the monetary transactions and society. So they introduced that quietly. The world never really paid much attention until probably the the 90s when the king abdicated the throne and gave it to his son, who is now the king. Then they decided to stick their neck out and propose to the world as they did in 2012 when we were asked to come and gather at the UN in New York to advance this new paradigm of an economy of happiness and well-being. Bhutan is actually working with some of my fellow Canadians, has advanced a gross national happiness governance framework that includes a survey, a national survey at the household level that actually measures your well-being. And that data then goes into the national kind of statistical database, which then shapes Bhutan's national policies. So that survey asks a lot of detailed questions about emotions, about mental well-being, even spiritual well-being. And it's a survey tool that I also use in a shorter form. Their survey takes about eight hours to complete by hand at the kitchen table because most people don't have computers. So you have to go to the family's home and fill out a long form survey, which takes there's 360 questions in their questionnaire. So they're so really dedicated Really dedicated. And they're like, hello, world. We're just this little fly, you know, on the rump of China and India. And why don't you try what we've done? And we think it's working for us. So what are some of the the arguments against having an economy of well-being? Like, what are some of the things that the establishment says are not, quote unquote, practical about it? Well, if you search for my name and under RT on YouTube, Russian television, I was interviewed. In fact, I was sitting in the UN and I got interviewed a request for interview by RT, which stands for Russian television. And they said, we'd like to interview you. What? You know, I'm sitting in the UN right now. It's like, well, we know that you're an expert on well-being economics and we want to interview you on our flagship program called Crosstalk. So they put me, I said, well, I, I'm not in New York for more than another day. So no, no, we'll interview you out of, out of our Edmonton studio. I was like, you can't possibly have a studio in Edmonton. Oh, oh no, we have a chair. We rent a chair in your local TV studio. And so uh, only to tell you the story because the show is called Crosstalk. So you have me saying, you know, well-being economy is the way of the future. And then you've got this London-based economist and I'm like, that's nonsense. You know, measuring happiness is just too fluffy. It's too subjective. And I'm like, really? Really, I mean, asking people whether their work brings them joy, meaning whether they feel belonging to a neighborhood, whether they trust local politicians or local business is immaterial, immaterial to who, you know, and so the, these are the back and forth, like a little tennis match we had on that program. And you'll just see if you watch it, you'll see, am I making more sense or is this guy making more sense? So he's going to defend the system. And here's what goes on is since World War II, economists have been defending GDP accounting and saying, well, it's the best we've got. You know, we just measure all the money changing hands in, in an economy. We think every dollar, no matter what happens, whether you're 
arresting someone or paying their prison year or, you know, or you spend time at home unpaid work is, you know, something that should be treated as positive in the national accounts. So these are the kind of almost ridiculous conversations we still continue to have. And guess what? Seven years later, we still haven't found an alternative to GDP as a measure of progress because in part there's entrenched, I call them the high priests of economics who have no interest in introducing another way of measuring well-being or progress because GDP is a convenient measure of monetary progress, but it's not it's still not measuring happiness. And if you had the happiness index, if you knew every day that Coca-Cola's perception value, its real value. If you knew that Coca-Cola, every time you drank a can of Coke, was literally corroding your interior gut tract. If you knew the liability of that in the healthcare system and you didn't shadow price it in the markets, then something's wrong with the system of lack of transparency. These are the kind of tough love things that I'm talking about. So don't tell me that well-being doesn't matter to an economy or to the financial markets. One thing that I have been thinking about heavily is healthcare and healthcare from the standpoint of the fact that we as a nation, we are getting older, right? And so a, a majority of our elderly are going into nursing homes mm. and those that aren't are being cared for at home. Like their families are having to spare the expense. It's like whether you take care of your aging parent at home or you take care of them in a nursing home, you still have to incur that in expense of time and energy and money. Mm -hmm. But if you're taking care of them at home, I guess the same way with childcare, if you're caring for your children at home, that's not accounted for in the economy the same way it would be uh, if you were. That's right. If you have a you're not getting You're not getting paid to raise the next generation. You're not getting paid to maintain the health of elders in our society. Why is that the case? Why do you have to pay a daycare worker to take care of your kids during the day? Why couldn't you be paid to be a stay at home dad to do the same thing? And yet we don't treat the two labor kind of aspects differently. doesn't make any sense. And we treat most of our, as far as I guess, economics goes, as actual payment, we treat our healthcare workers very poorly. Poorly. Daycare workers are some of the lowest paid people in society other than dry cleaning workers or it's just outrageous. We say our children are our future and then we pay them the least amount of money per hour. And because because we can't af actually afford to pay them because otherwise working wouldn't make any sense. What's the net benefit of paying for daycare versus working at McDonald's? Right. I don't know. There's there's no. Net, know? Yeah, there's no net benefit. There's it's a wash. Right. It's a in some state you would take a loss. That's the reality of the situation for many, many families. Yeah. I, I hope you sense my outrage at the ridiculous nature of this economic system that we're like, I think we can do better. Well, I would I would like to at least be able to have a balanced discussion. When you talk about the high priestess of economics, the father of capitalism, uh, Adam Smith. I'm always hearing that quoted, but then I was like, well, Adam Smith hated rent. Like our entire economy here in the U.S. in the last 50 years, he, he's been turning over in his grave over it because right. we've been charging rents and fees. And he absolutely hated that idea. So 
What do you think it would take to move the U.S. toward an economy of well-being? Is this something that, like, for instance, would we have to educate the young people about it in order to move us forward in the next 30 years? I would sit down with a new piece of vellum paper called the Declaration of Whatever Independence and rewrite it. Let's now include the blacks and the indigenous people and the women who were excluded when those founding fathers put their pen to paper. I would write a new charter of compassion, of love. No different than when you're founding any nation. The Declaration of Independence, like the Magna Carta, was a very important and high consciousness document. So what I've been doing is playing with this notion of if I take that declaration and I put the word love in where I think love could fit, what would it read like? What would it guide us to do and contemplate every day? We find these things self-evident that all of us are created in the same image of love. And therefore, we're a brothers and sisters keeper. Okay, now how do we behave around such a statement? Do we think that accumulating wealth without limit and based on some notion of entitlement and greed is a good thing? What kind of values will guide our decision making? How about humility and courage and respect as Indigenous peoples? maintain those seven sacred teachings for thousands of years, right? Those are the kind of, that's the kind of rethink. If I was the president of the United States, I'd call it the Manhattan Wellbeing Project. This is a generation of such incredible prosperity. We have artificial intelligence. We have all this stuff and we live in a, in a state, in a poverty mindset, in a scarcity mindset, in a greed or entitlement mindset that would make the founding fathers and mothers, I think, turn in their graves going, What came of this great aspiration? Why did we fight the British? Why did we want to decouple from the banks of London? What happened? Why don't we have a conversation that's based on the notion of shared responsibility, of true ownership of property? You're right about rent. Every one of us should have one unit, one share of our nation, one share of the total wealth of the nation is our inherent right as people, whether I'm a Canadian or an American. And what happens? 99% of the wealth is held by 0.5%, 1% 1, of the rentier class. Naturally, have accumulated all that wealth because of the power of compound interest. We were all taught about comp. All you have to know is over 70 years, guess what happens? The wealth concentrates. It's just the way math works. And yet here we are in the 5782 Jewish calendar year, the year of Jubilee, in which all wealth would be redistributed every seven years to the 12 tribes. And we don't even have a conversation about this. No leader. I don't care if you're Donald Trump or Mr. Biden. Who's leading that conversation? Where are the rabbis? Where are the church leaders talking about Jubilee for the United States or for any country today? Nowhere. Crickets. <laughs> it's like, I've gone to New York. I said to the Bernie Madoff victims, let's go meet at the 92nd Y. Let's talk about what you got left. Oh, you still got your Rhode Island place. And yeah, you got Bernie was a bad guy, right? He ran away with a spoon and he, he was very disrespectful and naughty. And you trusted him because he was your Jewish brother. He said, I'll invest your money wisely. And Bernie's just a f- front door man. He's nothing compared to the real power that's operating here, that we are all enslaved. And who's Moses? Who's going to lead us out of this enslavement? We're all enslaved. Yeah. I don't care what color you are. We're debt slaves. Yeah. And these are the big questions. You know, if I were the president, I would restore the Federal Reserve to the public trust, as Jefferson said, make as Lincoln died because he tried to do it, as Kennedy tried to do it and died too. It's like, these are the things, these are the tough love conversations we have to have. 
your book did make me want to look into the life of Bobby Kennedy. We talked from a, an American history standpoint in our educational system here in America. I recall Bobby Kennedy's name being mentioned alongside with John F. and, and MLK. I was thinking as a young person that the reason that they were killed were that they wanted equality for the racist. But the more that I find out little by little, the reason why they were killed was because they wanted equality amongst people, period. It wasn't a thing of, That's right. about that. Reading some of the yeah, that, stuff that you said about Bobby Kennedy, could you talk a little bit more about that? Bobby Kennedy and his brother, John, were guided by a great economist, Canadian economist, John Kenneth Galbraith. Of course, the Kennedys came out of considerable wealth. Their father, Joe, was quite involved in the gold trade and right and and did quite well during the the great depression uh so yeah they're rich irish catholics probably but i think the kennedys benefited from the counsel of john kenneth galbraith who would have taught them about money and how money's created and Galbraith at the time was ambassador to India, to JFK. On June 4th, Kennedy signed a special executive order. It's 1100011, which started to issue silver denominated bills, $25 bills, I believe, out of the U.S. Treasury. So what? Because people think, well, the Treasury is ours, right? We print the money for ourselves. No, you don't. The, the Federal Reserve is a private corporation established in 1913, which was preceded by Lincoln's assassination. Why did they assassinate Lincoln? Not because he led the North to victory or ended slavery or because he upset the bankers in London, because they were trying to blackmail him. They were financing the South and the North. They said, we'll offer you 60% interest on their line of credit. And Lincoln said, give him the finger, basically. So you could see the thread, the thread of assassinations that go on, because if you upset the money power, you're a dead man. And if you try to speak out against injustice, as MLK did. And so, in my opinion, what happened with that executive order, money started getting printed out of the Treasury, which is what Jefferson said. The Hamilton musical, if you've seen that musical, I watched it the other day. Mm -hmm. Some say Hamilton was just an agent of the Corporation of London, which controlled all the banking. They still control the banks of the world. That's where the banking power is in the world. Not New York. It's actually in London. I mean, some in New York. So Kennedy, when I interpret that, Johnson rescinds that executive order the next day he takes office. Interesting. Why would he? Why that executive? Well, because if Kennedy had lived, then eventually, in my belief, the U.S. Federal Reserve would be seriously examined and nationalized, given back to the people. J.P. Morgan, the Rothschilds, all those boys that met on Jekyll Island in Georgia to create the corporation would be over. We'd rescind their corporate license to create money out of thin air. And the slavery of the United States citizen would be over. It didn't happen. And Bobby, as good as he was, I mean, he was probably a good soul. The only thing that he said of interest to me was that great speech, a speech in Kansas City in which he critiqued the GDP in the middle. And it doesn't even fit. And you read that speech and like, how, why would he stop in the middle of this political speech and then critique the GDP which Galbraith said the restitution or the address of the grievances of national income accounting and GDP is the most unfinished piece of economic work in our generation. He said that. So here's Kennedy saying, let's get on with it. Let's measure the things that make life worthwhile. Huh. And now you've got his son, Robert, who I've met twice, Kennedy Jr., 
also trying to speak about injustice. And it's nice to, to ignore the Kennedys, isn't it? <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, they haven't really been in the public eye very much since John F. Kennedy Jr. died. I mean, not to turn this into like a discussion of quote unquote conspiracies, but no, no, no. It's it, all I'm all I'm pointing out is I could point to the demise of Julius Caesar and say, you see, it's the same plot line to Jesus, to JFK, to MLK, to like, you'll see there's a pattern here. Even Napoleon, Napoleon was taken out eventually because he, Napoleon actually had created, I didn't know this until a few weeks ago, had created it's their own Bank de Royale, their own central bank that he said would be for the people, by the people, owned by the people, never by private banks. And eventually they took him out too. I wonder what it would be. It might be interesting to take a look at any country that wanted to create a public bank or a public banking system and see how their leadership eventually fared. Like you said, everything is connected to the, the banks in London or the World Bank. There is, a, there is a clue here, Jason, and, and there's a really interesting book I've read now twice. It's called, it's by the Rabbi Mir Tamari, of, who was the former Bank of Israel governor. And it's called, With All My Possession, Jewish Ethics and Economic Life. He's 94 years old now. What he says is reestablishes the ancient teachings of the Israelites on these kind of protocols of land ownership, taxation, Jubilee, debt forgiveness every seven years, wealth redistribution every 70 years. So, and there's those numbers, seven times seven is 49, right? And it's like, why seven? And it turns out that they borrowed all those laws from the Sumerians, the ancient Sumerians. The Babylonians would have picked up. And when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon, they picked up. It's just sacred geometry because the Sumerians knew that through the power of compound interest, if debts are allowed to accumulate over seven years, you don't have anyone to fight your wars for you anymore. You got indentured debt slaves and you don't want that. So in the Israel, it's knowing they're the chosen people. And so it's not like we don't have the historical record of nations or societies that tried to live this way. But it seems that over and over again, we fall into a kind of a state of sleep or whatever that just allows these things to, we acquiesce, we let things just get from bad to worse to where we are today. And the climate crisis is a reflection of just the kind of cancer that has become, you know, part of, part of our fabric. And it's not necessary. That's the point. Speaking about being good stewards of the earth, how do we get other nations to cooperate with us, because that's one of the main arguments that I hear as far as, for instance, going green. Um, I hear people say all the time, you know, well, we could go green, but what about China? What about, you know, it's, it's always about, well, what about the other person? You know, is there a way that we could, I mean, I always feel like we should lead, like we should, we should be the example and set the higher standard, but how, how do we get people, I guess, globally on board because this seems like an ideal way to begin to address issues like this for our grandchildren's grandchildren. Yeah. So I've argued that to your point, we are me, you, my family, my neighborhood. We're the ones who need to lead by example. We can live on a smaller ecological footprint. We have the 
the power and the choice to do that. So why do we wait for China? I mean, I work for for the Chinese in their aspiration to do green GDP accounting. And then they looked around the world and said, well, even you Canadians haven't really adopted it, have you? I said, no, our prime minister is not adopting green GDP accounting. And then they look around themselves, whether they're communist party, whatever you want to believe in. You know, I'm not a fan of communist party either, but they're like, why should we go first when the rest of the world that been doing this for the last 30 years, haven't done anything with it. There's still no green GDP number. And it's not like we don't have the data to report it. We're going to cop. We're going to Glasgow this week. Right. It's like for another cop 26 meeting. And there's still no accounting of the carbon budget of the planet. Like, are you kidding me? I'm a forester. I can show you the carbon profile of all the world's forests today and show you the liability that we're imposing on those poor forests. And we don't, we can't be creative enough to insurance premiums and to change our behavior. If, if your flight suddenly was three times as high because the actual carbon liability of that jet fuel was counted, you would stop flying or you would choose one less flight or two less flights a year. You wouldn't just hop on a plane anymore, but we don't do that, do we? We just like, oh, well, that, that would make travel too expensive. That would hurt the airline industry and that would hurt tourism. And I was like, no, that means we're not serious then about climate change, are we? And so it, these are the things. And the other thing I raise is that the reality is that people say, well, Mark, we can't afford to do what you're suggesting. I said, the only reason that's true is because you haven't actually calculated what the hidden costs of interest payments of the amount of debt that's outstanding in the United States or Canada. And right now that's consuming at the very least 50 to 60% of the average household take-home income. Do you, you hear what I just said? 50 to 60% of your expenditures at, you know, at wherever a fast food store on your receipt should show that 50% of that invoice, that receipt was hidden interest charges on the debt the company held, the mortgage you hold, the student loans, the government debt. And nobody counts that. Why? It's not because it's not real. It's absolutely real. We know we're paying interest on these debts. That's why we can't do anything. We say, well, you can barely put food on the table can barely pay the rent. I don't make a living wage. And I say, well, if I was president, I'd wipe that all out, turn you to a 20 hour work week from a 45 or 50 hour work week because you're not working anymore for this ridiculous thing called interest payments. And so their climate change is driven. Everything's then been driven by this debt obligation, right? That nobody sees because it's not self-evident in the transactions of our economy. And it's like, Look, it's yes, it would be complicated, but next week in Glasgow, we could all agree, you know what the problem is? The problem isn't like just combustion of fossil fuels. It's actually this freaking debt monster that's compelling all of us to over consume and overproduce and overfly or over whatever. And if we eliminate with just like 50% off, the greenhouse gas emissions would go down the same amount and the planet would begin to breathe. You created these money systems yourself. They're anathema to nature. I was going to say, <laughs> it's like, it's like we've made it up. Like in previous seasons, I've had guests on who have explained and really made it very clear to me. And it's not something that we think about because, but we agree to the interpretation of what money means. We wrote the constitution. We allowed banks to create money out of thin air. We gave them a license to do that. Right. You read the corporate charter of the Bank of America. I, I give you permission to create loans out of thin air. 
well, if you read the fine print, that's what it says. Right. Really? Why, why don't Jason, why don't you have that permission? You're a bank. You can create money against you, your person, your future, your skills. No different than this corporation called Bank of America. Give everyone the same power and see what happens. No, they don't want that. Really- <laughs> no, they don't want that, do they? Uh-uh, I got shareholders and I got, you know. No, no, come on. We're mature enough. <laughs> this is it. They treat us like children. It's like, oh, it's too complicated. You know, don't read the fine print on your credit card statement. It's like 15 pages of legal BS. No, no, you're doing the same thing. You created the credit chart. You charge us 24% interest on the fact that we couldn't pay the balance last month. That is just criminal. Yeah. It's like, and you, anyways, it's, you intentionally go after people who don't understand or people who can't pay the other part about it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So the, these are the kind of injustices that, and I, I have to honestly say there hasn't been one leader, including JFK. I think that's been bold enough to stand up against the money power as Lincoln called them or Andrew Jackson called him a den of vipers. He had way stronger language than I have. Yeah, and Andrew was known for his um, colorful terminology that he would use on the yeah. Senate floor. They tried to kill him a few times, didn't they? Yeah, they did. He goes, yeah, you try to take me out, man. Like, just take me out. Oh, I'll dare you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got a couple more questions left. And this one that I'm asking all the guests this season. With all of your extensive work, what does well-being mean to you? Oh, come on. That's such a low ball. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> well, well-being for me, I go back to the Greek definition. It means the well-being of my soul, oidaimonia, happiness. And for me is, do I feel content and at peace in my soul? Yes, I do. Do I know where I'm going after I throw off the shell of a husk of a body? Yes, I do. I have no question that there's heaven. And so well-being to me is about ensuring my neighbor and my children and those I love have the best possible life because they know we're all created in that image of love. We're no different. I don't care what color or language you speak. We're all in the same image. And that's a place of joy. Okay. Well, what are three books that you think everyone should read? Read the Bible just once. (laughs) Cover to cover. There's some other books I love. There's a book called Love Without End, Jesus Speaks by Glenda Green, which I consider a book about the physics of love, the actual structure and nature of love. And my third favorite book, books actually by Dr. David R. Hawkins, starting with Power Versus Force, which was about his inquiry into the notion of this whole area of consciousness, which means really awareness, one's alignment with God with Christ consciousness, fascinating work. And he wrote a number of books. He's now deceased, but yeah, those are, those are probably my favorite books. Okay. And where can, if people wanted to find out more information about economies of well-being, where would you suggest that they do their research? Well, I'm all over YouTube. So you can just look up my name, Mark Anielski, A-N-I-E-L-S-K-I which is also my website, anielski.com. I've got a podcast like you have called The Economy of Wellbeing or something like that. I always forget the real name of the podcast, but I have some fabulous guests who just talk about how what well-being means to them and their their respective professions. And you can, of course, buy my book on Amazon or 
It's an ebook version, both the economics of happiness, which is my first book from 2007. It's only an ebook version now. And then, or used books, of course, and the economy. I always forget. And Economy of Wellbeing, which is my second book, which was published in 2018, which people said, please, Mark, write a how-to manual for us because your first book was per our head and it was more theological than it was. It's like, okay, fine. I'll write the next book, which is, you know. Is there... And now, not... Well, my, my next vision is maybe you have to write a third book, which is called The Economics of Love or A Civilization of Love Operating Manual. I don't know. I, is there a third book coming? <laughs> yeah. I just told you what I think, what I'm thinking of writing. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know if you, if that was actually on the drawing board or. And I'll be, I'll start with, we find these things self-evident. Do you want me to keep going? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all I'll say. Cause if you read beyond this first line, good luck. Right. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> good luck to me. To get, oh, Mr. Mark Anielski, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Full appreciation for Mr. Mark Anielski spending time with us today. This season, we will explore what thought processes are necessary to develop an economy of well-being. We will use the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals to focus this conversation because this isn't about your well-being or my well-being. It is about the well-being of our grandchildren's grandchildren. Until next time. Be well. Feel love. The M. Jason Graham Show is written and produced by M. Jason Graham. Audio engineered by Wing Chun Wong. The theme song was composed by Travis D. Artist. This has been the M. Jason Graham Show. I'm M. Jason Graham. <laughs>